Jeff, what was that again? I, that sounded familiar to me. Well, that's because we had it on last week. Oh, that's right. So we're, we're, we're talking about Tarzan again? That's right. Tarzan and... Didn't you read the show notes? I did. Tarzan and tradition. I, I such, my short-term memory is bad. Yeah, <laughs> Part yeah. two. Part two. That's correct. So we had the Johnny Weissmuller there, Tarzan scream, and a little jungle music. Man, that guy can belt it out. Yeah, he can. It's right. kind of like yodeling, right? Imagine Tarzan swinging through the Alps. That's yeah. what you got. <laughs> right, right. Did we talk about Johnny last time? We he, did not. Was he, he was uh, an Oli- Olympic, Olympic he swimmer? He was an Olympic swimmer. Right. The guy could wrestle a crocodile underwater. Okay. Speak in broken English. Perfect. Sounds perfect right. for Tarzan. Hang, hang around with a chimpanzee. Yeah. It was that, great. Yeah. So what are we doing tonight? This is the Ad Nauseam Podcast, is it not? Yeah, what episode are we on? And your name is uh, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle, and mine is... Is uh, David C. Noe. That's correct. You left off my title. Dr. David C. That's fine. All right. No, okay. you're, you're touchy about that. Yeah. <laughs> episode 118. Okay. Tarzan and Tradition, part two. Excellent. I'm looking forward to this. I am too. Yep. The, the first one turned out to be kind of a hit. Yeah. I got some nice feedback from folks. Yes. I, I think it probably took a lot of people by surprise. Okay? Right. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one who never thought about a connection between the legends of Tarzan and the classical tradition. Turns out the the connections are, um, you know, they're pretty numerous and strong. Yeah. So we have no shout out tonight. Okay. You like what I put there in the uh, script? You said shout out nine. Nine. All right. That's right. No shout outs. Uh, But this episode is, uh, as we said last week, a bit of an homage to my former professor, the late Dr. Erling B. Holtzmark, who went by the name Jack. Okay. And he wrote this book called Tarzan and Tradition, Classical Myth in Popular Literature, published in 1981 by Greenwood Press. Hmm. And if you could summarize for us, mm-hmm. Dr. Winkle, what did we talk about last week? Just to bring people up to speed since it's a two-parter. Well, I mean, we, we only, I think we only got into chapter one uh, of that. That of sounds that like us. That does sound like us, right? So, um, I mean, we were, we were setting up a, um, a number of the... Uh, kind of the key parallels between um, kind of the cl- classical mythic tradition, right. linguistic tradition, um, and uh, the text of, of Tarzan. We were talking about the background of um, who's our author? Who's the author? Edgar Rice Burroughs. That's we were correct. talking about his background and um, what where his life kind of maybe overlapped with the classics. His his particular uh, educational background. And uh, Holtzmark um, uh, kind of showed that he was steeped in the classics. That's right. Uh, from a very young age. Yes, read quite a bit of Caesar. Mm-hmm. May have studied some Greek, but for sure knew Latin quite well. Right. Um, was a was a very good Latin student. Right. And um, he, he, in that first chapter, starts to show about how a number of these things are kind of coming out in the Tarzan legend. Absolutely. Either deliberately or just kind of because it was kind of been part of his DNA, Burroughs' DNA. That's right. Yeah. So the first book, Tarzan of the Apes, published in 1912. And you remember that we read some very pointed criticism from another author, a more famous author, an Englishman, right, who uh, had his own uh, feral child story, Mowgli. Mm -hmm. And so Rudyard Kipling said something along the lines of uh, Burroughs wanted to see how bad a book he could write and get away with it. (laughs) That's right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, Now, do we know, I'm, I'm... I forgot if we talked about dates. Did the Jungle Book, uh, does that predate? Definitely. Okay, so maybe Kipling was thinking, okay, this guy, he ripped me off. Ripped me off. Right. (laughs) And maybe he's having a bit more success. Right. Yeah. And very popular, for sure. Yeah. We looked a little bit at, you know, what are the expectations you should put on something called Pulp Fiction? Mm -hmm. Is it fair to expect this or that? We mentioned that um, Tarzan has been canceled, at least, uh, because Mm. the way he deals with, this is a point we didn't cover too much in the discussion, just mentioned it, but... Um, the way that he deals with uh, many of the hot button issues today, 
you know, you you couldn't have uh, said those things today, which he said back then. Right. So right. just wouldn't wouldn't work. Sure. Different different time period. Right. We may need a more uh, sensitive. Yeah. Up, updated portrayal of, of right, right. Right. <laughs> so we looked at chapter one, uh, which was language. And uh, if the audience remembers, we looked at three key aspects that Holtzmark um, said are unique to uh, Greek and Latin style. And those were polarity, right? Combination mm-hmm. of opposites. Uh, chiasmus, right? An A-B-B-A kind of word order. Yeah. And then parallelism. Right. The A-B-A-B. And uh, for my money, the interesting part of our conversation last week was really looking at um, the question you asked, which was, does Burroughs do this deliberately? Mm-hmm. You know, is the claim that he's deliberately modeling his style after the classical authors? And I think we, you know, we came to the conclusion uh, following Jack that no, it's just kind of something he absorbed. Right, right, right. And in the grand scheme of things, in the points that um, that uh, Holtzmark is trying to make, it doesn't really matter. Right, right. That's not. I think it's an interesting point, but I don't think it's an essential point. Uh, where, you know, we don't have some diary entry from Burroughs who's saying, oh, yes, I modeled this after this book of the Aeneid or whatever, right? Right, right. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So tonight we're going to start out with chapter two, and uh, very naturally we flow from the, the question of language, which mm-hmm. was chapter one, into chapter two, the question of technique, right? Yes. So how does language produce a kind of technique, specifically the ring composition mm. uh, for which the Iliad is famous, and then two additional elements of um, standard composition of plots, and that is synchrosis and um, anagnoresis, right? Anagnoresis, which is... Uh, recognition. Recognition. Right. So there's a there's a synchrosis, a comparison, and then a recognition scene. Excellent. Now, before we get into that, um, I I have a question for you, and this goes back to kind of your your own experience of, of, of Jack Holtzmark. And um, I was thinking about my own grad school days, and um, I, there was a professor that I had, and uh, he... Um, he wrote a book or wrote a couple of books on um, kind of American bluegrass music. Interesting. And he was kind of, it was very, very kind of tangentially uh, was tying it to kind of the Homeric kind of, you know, wandering poet tradition. Okay. But I remember in my department, this might just be kind of the, the dysfunction of my own department, is that there was grumbling amongst the other profs of been, when is John going to get off this thing and come back to kind of doing some right. actually real, real scholarship? And right. I was wondering, was did, was there any kind of talk? Oh, Jack's doing this Tarzan, right, thing. right, and uh, or was it much more uh, collegial? Well, not that I picked up on. Okay, not that I picked up on, but you know, there was one individual. I won't mention the person's name, um, but one one individual was really well known for a particular classical specialty, mm-hmm. and I got the impression only from that individual. I'm sure he's he or she is long deceased, <laughs> but I got the impression from that individual that um, serious scholars, you know, they only they only dealt with classical authors proper. I see, and they didn't yeah. dabble. But I don't think that was the general perception okay. or attitude, um, in part because Jack was one of the older faculty at the time. Okay, yeah. So you know, you're not, not really as subject to that. Plus, he had certainly um, earned his keep. In the classical world previously, right? He wrote this brilliant paper on Lucretius. I think it was brilliant, um, in which he said Lucretius basically got correct the um, the mechanism of the olfactory sense, right? Hmm. So how do, you know, in other words, how do we smell? Right. right? Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. read in the text of um, De Rerum Natura, right, the whole enchilada as yeah. we called it, yeah, yeah. an account of how smelling takes place, and you know Jack carefully analyzed this passage and compared it to 
you know, modern understanding of, of how it is that we smell flowers and things. <laughs> and he says, Lucretius is 99% or something like that accurate, right? That is so interesting. So I think the key to being, um, what did Jack say, halfway between popularizing and scholarship, which mm -hmm. is where this Tarzan tradition is, yeah. the key to doing that successfully is having already made your name in something more serious. Gotcha, gotcha. Because right, right. then, then nobody can say... You're only doing this because you can't do the kind of thing we do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You're you're slumming it for the for the clicks and the likes there. Right. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. There's got to be some kind of analog in music, right? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, a, a famous musician um, does something that's you know really simple, like the Christmas album. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Everybody does a Christmas album, but if your first album is a Christmas album. You don't really have. You're not really entitled to that in right. some in some sense. You got to show that you can you can appeal on your own yes. before you do what everyone else has done. So that's good. I think another analog would be like like the band Yes. Okay. You know, so in their early albums, they had these you know, these 12 minute suites of prog rock and, right. and such. And then 1983, they come out with a 90125 and it's Owner of a Lonely Heart. And suddenly right. it's a three minute, you know, a tight pop song. Right. And a lot of the purists were saying, what happened? Right. Right. They, they kind of, they sold out. Right. No. Um, no, no, no. There's right. nothing wrong with being popular occasionally. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so, the, but a lot of people would say, I think, um, like, like the, the kind of scholar who would sneer at Tarzan yeah. and say, well, you know, they, they, they betrayed their prog rock yeah. roots, right? Yeah, so. yeah. Or, you know, the, the person who um, deconstructs the donut or something as the dessert, right? It's a deconstructed donut. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. We just make an actual donut and <laughs> that would be okay. Right, 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 right. But I think, you know, Jack quoted quite a bit of the thinking of Burroughs, right? Mm -hmm. um, the beginning of last week's episode, Jack, we read for his quotations of all of the authors who aren't able to read literature in a sensitive fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and yeah. Uh, so, you know, he, he kind of took them apart. He was a contrarian, right? Mm -hmm. and, and frankly, if people did in the department, which I don't think was the case, if they were to criticize him for doing this, he doesn't care. Right, right, right. He doesn't right. care at all. Yeah. He, he does what he's interested in. Yeah. And I think that's why I was so drawn to him. Yeah, that's very admirable. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And he was warm to students, so yeah. I appreciated that. Excellent. Okay. So, technique. Technique. Let's get into it. All right, Dave. You mentioned uh, ring composition, right? Something that something that Homer is so famous for, and in, in the Iliad, um, how do we see that here in the in the Tarzan novels? Right. So beginning here on page thirty-seven. Okay. Greek prose writers says Holtzmark constantly use ring composition to organize the structure of their works and simultaneously to comment on the themes. The Latin writers, knowing their Greek well and understanding quite thoroughly how Greek literature was put together, adopted this device of ring composition in their own works. At the end of Book 8 of the Aeneid, see, we're hey, back there. <laughs> all right. For example, the goddess Venus returns to her son Aeneas with splendid weapons and a shield which the divine smith Vulcan has forged for him. This shield is a marvel to behold, for on it are represented the past relative to Aeneas' history of Rome as well as the future, stretching down to Virgil's own day. So then Jack gives an example of how this ring composition works. He says, over 100 lines... Uh, over the course of 100 lines, this theme is framed by the repeated and synonymous vocabulary at start and conclusion. So we have an A, B, C, D, C, B, A structure. Okay. Rejoicing at honor, marvels at the shield there. Throughout the shield, does he marvel? In pictures, he delights. So okay. you've got the A, B, C, D, mm -hmm. C, B, A. Yep. This is called ring composition. All right. Now, surprisingly, maybe for some... Uh, Burroughs had developed this technique to a very high level 
talking about Tarzan swinging through the jungle. I don't believe it. <laughs> Here we go. All right. right. So uh, Tarzan roaming the jungle in search of the trail of Taglot and the she, meaning the she ape, traveled swiftly. In a little moonlit glade ahead of him, the great ape was bending over the prostrate form of the woman Tarzan sought. Tarzan passed within 50 yards of the tragedy that was being enacted in the glade, and the opportunity was gone beyond recall. Okay. So that's ring composition. All right. right? That's ring composition. Uh, you have the scene is framed and therefore made to stand out in all its teasing eroticism by the traveling of Tarzan and by the reference to the glade itself and the little drama or tragedy in it. The brief digression descri that describes what Toglot is trying to do is therefore joined smoothly to the larger narrative by the epic device of ring composition, which here takes the form of both a motif, the traveling search of Tarzan, and a word, glade. Very interesting. Persuaded? I need, I need more than just an example of one. But okay. The, I, the, the, this is one of the things that kind of struck me last time as well is that um, so that when I hear right. Burroughs' prose, now, again, granted, I have not read Tarzan of the Apes, but from what I've, I've heard and read from, from Holtzmark's book, it's not great prose, right? This is not, um, is, is the language itself doesn't kind of blow me away. No, no. But, I mean, but in, in the, grand, the greater scheme of things, in, what the, in the thesis of the book, that's neither here nor there. The fact that he's using kind of these very, um, um, I don't know if lofty is the right word, but these kind of these ancient and, and classical approaches right. to arranging his language, I find that in some ways even more fascinating that it's attached to prose that is um, simple, simple, very simple. Yes, the kind of prose that uh, Kipling would hate. <laughs> exactly, and apparently did. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. Right. So here we go. This is from uh, one of the novels called Tales. Tarzan swung himself into the branches of the tree. Tarzan was electrified into instant action. Like an arrow from a bow, he shot through the trees in the direction of the sound. So Holtzmark comments, Sandwiched between these two framing references to action arising from arduous physical activity is the serene and restful passage which establishes Tarzan's dawning awareness of the non-physical, spiritual aspects of existence. That passage is itself framed by the phrase, Swaying Couch. So, what do we have? Schematically, you have A, action, followed by B, thought, couch problem, followed by B, thought, solution, couch, followed by A, action. Hmm. A, B, B, A. Now, you might be thinking, come on, this is a little cutesy. It, I, that is, I, I was thinking. What you're thinking? Oh, I'm, I'm thinking kind of our, one of our favorite phrases that he's seeing something that really not there. isn't there. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I know. don't think so. No? No, I think it's there. Okay. It's just surprising because of the simplicity of the elements. I, but I'm just thinking, though, if you were just to sit, it tell, someone told me to sit down and say, write a page and a half. It's got to be kind of a short little action story. It's going right. to have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. Wouldn't that just be kind of a natural way for these kind of things to fall out? I don't think so. No? Not the ABBA structure. Okay. Where you have action in part A, and you have action in A at the end. You have a, a, a single element in the center. Okay. Right? So maybe, maybe I can do this in English, right? He walked into the room, sat down, read a book. The book was good. He stood up, and he walked out of the room. Okay. That's like an... A, B, C, B, A, isn't it? It is, but isn't that... You're somebody, not impressed. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, okay? I, I'm willing to give uh, Jack the benefit of the doubt. Okay, let's let's just leave it at that. Okay, All we'll right. leave it at that then. Okay. All right. So, Jeff, maybe I can uh, convince you about these comparisons, right? Okay. The synchrosis. So, 
the particular manifestation of the synchristic form in terms of father and son, this is page 52 of the book, is rather common. Greek comedy, both the older type associated with the name of Aristophanes and the newer type associated with Menander and the earlier Roman comedians, places strong reliance on this fundamental synchrosis that barely masks a sustained battle of the generations. Okay. Are you with me? I'm with you. Okay. So to begin with, one of the more specific synchrosis encountered in Burroughs, we may, to begin with one of, we may direct attention to the type which juxtaposes Tarzan to his uncle or cousin, the putative heir and heir apparent to the distinguished title of Lord Greystoke. Okay. Here the ape man is seen in the jungle environment and is engaged in some barbarous activity. The others are in their urban surroundings and are busied in some civilized social diversion. A typical passage is an early one in Tarzan, the first book. Tarzan has been pursuing the native who shot his stepmother and for the first time has seen a human being eat food that has been cooked by fire. After the man leaves the part of the slain boar that he does not eat, Tarzan partakes of the remnants. Then Holtzmark gives us a quote. So this is Tarzan himself. But be that as it may, Tarzan would not ruin good meat in any such foolish manner. So he gobbled down a great quantity of the raw flesh, burying the balance of the carcass beside the trail where he could find it upon his return. And then the Lord Greystoke wiped his greasy fingers upon his naked thighs and took up the trail of Kulanga, the son of Mbanga, the king, while in far-off London another Lord Greystoke, the younger brother of the real Lord Greystoke's father, sent back his chops to the club's chef because they were underdone. And when he had finished his repast, he dropped his finger ends into a silver bowl of scented water and dried them upon a piece of snowy damask. Hmm. Well, that's nice. That's nice. That's pretty good. That is a a really nice juxtaposition. Right. right? So he says, the antitheses leap out from the page. Mm -hmm. Do they leap at you, Winkle? Yes. Well, I think also, but also the similarities. I think um, that Burroughs wants to see what, in the grand scheme of things, what's really the difference between eating the board and eating what's the the chop? The chop. The the chop, right? Well, the, the chop's cooked, right? Yeah. But the real, right, the real civilized individual in these stories is Tarzan. Right. Though outwardly he's savage. Yes. And the savage individual is the one who's sitting in a London club, you know, daintily putting his fingers into a silver bowl of scented water. Yeah, this is what, in, in my myth class, I mentioned as what I take to be almost the closest thing to a, a skeleton key for understanding how myth or even fiction works is right. the tension between nature and civilization. Yeah, yeah. And playing with those, those, those tropes. Right. And so I think like the idea is that Tarzan... He looks like right. he's pure nature, right. but he's the more civilized one. Yeah, but now you're getting into themes. Okay, so I got I to gotta back off. Which is good, because okay. it's technique, right? Right. So, Holtzmark says the phrase, quote, gobbled down a great quantity of the raw flesh, is opposed to sent back his chops to the club's chef because they were underdone. Mm-hmm, exactly. And wiped his greasy fingers upon his naked thighs to drop his finger ends into a silver bowl of scented water and dry them on a piece of snowy damask. Right. The underlying polarity of raw and cooked, civilized and uncivilized, is quite unmistakable. Yes. All so, right. So there's good technique. Very good technique. Right? I would say that's that's excellent technique. Agreed. You ready to move on to animals? Let's do it. Okay, so I want to get your response to this, Jeff. I want to see what you think. Let's do it. Okay, so this is the chapter on animals, chapter 3, page 66. Of course, the naturalistic or zoological accuracy in Burroughs' depiction of ape society is of no more consequence to us than is the theological veracity of Homer's presentation of deity. Homer was no more a theologian than Burroughs was a zoologist. Both deploy their non-human actors 
the better to explain and comment on the human participants. Hmm. So there's an interesting comparison. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I mean, I I wrestle a little bit with his his take on Homer. Okay. But, um, j- just from I mean, the the influence that Homer had on, on on later Greek society, I think how they understood the gods right. is I think is unmistakable. Yes. But we've talked about this at length, right? And and this is a, a favorite theme of mine. I'm stealing from Werner Jaeger, right? And that is that Plato is the watershed moment in Greek theology. Mm-hmm. And Plato says, look, come on. Homer's gods are not to be taken seriously. Right. And, and all of you folks who are running around quoting Homer like he really knows something about the divine, you're just mistaken. And so it's could it be kind of an accident of history that... Um, people's theology derived from someone who really wasn't intending uh, to describe the, you know, the inner life of, of the divinities? Yeah. I, well, I think you, you, know, you get into question of intent. It's an, it's an impossible question to answer. So I think, I think I'm with Holtzmark, maybe with the caveat that he's talking about post-Plato kind of notions of theology. But I think Homer's, the influence of Homer on actual Greek theology is unmistakable. Okay. Right? So, so like, I mean, Plato could say it's just because people are a bunch of morons. Right. But uh, I think that's a little dismissive. Okay. Well, let's run it through the mill here now. Okay. Um, his basic point is that if you read Tarzan and you say, you know, you're like, what's that woman's name? Jane Goodall. Is that her name? The Yeah. The ape. Gorillas the, in the mist. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. If someone like her reads, someone like she reads Tarzan and says, oh, this is so unrealistic. The, yeah. ape, the apes don't behave this way. Right. This isn't the structure. It's matriarchal or it's this or that. Yeah. Such a person would probably completely miss the point. Gotcha. Yes. Of uh, why Burroughs included ape society in his story at all. Right. Right. In the, in the same way that if someone is is listening to a recitation of the Iliad right. and harping on, well, that's not how you worship the gods or right. or, or, or this and that, and rather than seeing it's inconsequential Zeus to the and Aphrodite as characters in a in a in a gripping story, right? That is to miss the point, right? Okay, okay. And, right. and later on, um, in the um, I think it's in the chapter on it's either hero or themes. We're going to talk about some theological aspects of Burroughs' project, which I think are really interesting, okay, and quite surprising. Uh, But that's the first point, you know, um, he says, to continue here, in this comparison of apes and men, we initially favor the apes. This impression is reinforced on many later occasions by the same typical passage in which an ape goes berserk only to be avoided by the other members of the tribe. Without confrontation to fuel them, such sudden seizures spend themselves of their own accord. If confrontation becomes necessary, a single death may follow, but the society endures unharmed. The latter alternative takes place when Tarzan destroys his foster father, as well as when Tarzan finally fills Ker- kills Kerchak to become the leader of the tribe. Hmm. Okay. So right. not realistic to how tribal uh, ape tribe society functions, apparently. Yeah. But um, not a valid criticism of Burroughs because he's using, uh, Holtzmark's claim is he's using ape society to comment on human relationships and character. Yes. Do you think Homer is doing the same thing? Um, maybe to revisit the question from a different angle. Uh, I maybe not in the conscious way that Burroughs is doing it. I think the the comparison holds. I I, I think I see what Holtzmark is is trying to say, and but reading or hearing both stories requires some suspension of disbelief to get to um, to really appreciate and to and to enjoy um, 
what the what the narrative is. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. All right. Well, yeah. we'll move along then. We'll try something else. Okay. The obstreperous female. Oh, this sounds interesting. I don't know. <laughs> page, page sixty-eight. Okay. Still in the chapter on animals. All right. Uh, quoth Holtzmark, the obstreperous female is a familiar figure in the Olympian world, and none is more obstreperous than Hera. True. I love I love the way he chooses a, a fairly vague word because he's wading into potentially controversial territory. Right. Right. So, so I'm better this word than say what shrewish. Maybe I don't okay. know. I have no comment. Okay. And none is more obstreperous than Hera, wife of Zeus. The apes, like the deities, have on occasion to contend with a difficult she, who can make life miserable for a bull. Tika, this is one of the apes, for example, is so hard to manage for the bull who abducted her that he concludes he made a mistake in taking her. Then he gives the reference. But for all the idle and fundamentally carefree uh, life the apes live, there is, as among the gods, continual squabbling in which lies the potential for the dissolution of the tribe. Here's another comparison, right? The gods of Homer are like the apes of Tarzan. Okay. All right. Yeah, you're, yeah, not, yeah. you're not persuaded. No, no. I, like, I actually like this a lot better. Okay. Yep. Even the famous council scenes on Olympus find their counterpart among the apes. Allusion to such councils is made in Tales of Tarzan, and specific mention comes in connection with the dum-dum the supreme ceremony of ape society. Dum-dum is the supreme? Dum-dum. Okay. D-U-M dash D-U-M. All right. I'm sure if we ask Jane Goodall or some, I don't know if that's, I think that's her name. Yeah. Or some, um, what, some uh, pithocene or what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know what you're looking Pithocene's for. Pithocene's not the right <laughs> word, but whatever word relates to apes, anthropoid, you know. So yeah. Ape specialist, they'd say there is such a thing. Probably not. Anyway, indeed, in one passage, we are explicitly told that the sequestered and sheltered area in which the ceremony of the dum-dum takes place is, quote, the council chamber of the great apes. Okay. So what, right. what do you, you have a scene from the Odyssey, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. The right. apes are gathering around just like the Olympian gods. Right, mixed with a kind of like a, almost a, a mystery element to it as well. It's yeah. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not an open council, it's a right. secret council. And you've got some comedy, too. Right, because... It's called Dum Dum? It's called Dum Dum. And they're <laughs> apes, right? Right. Trying to function like a civilized society. Not so different than Zeus and Hera and their squabbling and Hephaestus, you know, bumbling around trying to serve drinks right. and, and Poseidon, everybody laughing at him. And, okay. Yeah, I see it. I see it. I like all this. Right, yeah. All right. So, Jeff, as we go on in this chapter on animals, where do we want to pick up next? Well, let's um, let's talk about where where, um, where Holtzmark talks about uh, Burroughs' awareness of and of uh, kind of the participation in a heroic tradition. Okay. Yeah. So, can you quote uh, that passage? Yeah. So he uh, Holtzmark writes the, uh, this development reveals not only Burroughs' awareness of and participation in a heroic tradition, but also his innovating departure from it. He makes the tradition work for him without being trapped in a mindless replication of it where the ancients wanted to believe there was something divine or at least a possibility for it in man, Burroughs keeps reminding of us, reminding us of our zoological phylogeny. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm, I think I, I lost him there. So he's... Yeah. So he keeps reminding us of, I, I don't know if, is it phylogeny? Philo I don't know. I think it's phylogeny. Phylogeny. Well, so, so Burroughs was a strong believer in Darwinism. Okay. Like, I think pretty much every one of that... Yeah, early generation, all the intellectuals, they made that claim at least. Right. In any event, so he sees uh, Tarzan as kind of man emerging from ape. Yes. And so he keeps going back to that theme. And so he doesn't see the divine in the same way that the Greeks would see human beings as descended from the, the gods. I see. Okay. Okay. All right. 
Let me read a little bit more here. Sure. So it says, both the ancient writers and Burroughs are true to the respective eras. Hesiod's Theogony and Catalog of Women established a more or less direct pro, um, provenance of men from divinity. And many other writers of antiquity believed, at least, or at least for artistic purposes, in this fact of man's origin. Like so many of his contemporaries in our own, Burroughs was deeply impressed with Darwin's theory of evolution, like you were saying. Right. And from that cultural vantage, he could not help seeing something of the beast in man's background. Okay. So whereas the Greeks would, would see, at least for the purpose of art, right. a kind of a, a reflection of the divine right. in human beings, uh, and so much Burroughs is kind of going in the opposite direction. Yes. He's yeah. saying here here is Tarzan the man emerging from the apes. Okay. All right. That's the idea. All right. Okay. Yep. All right. Um. Well, should, uh, should we move on to the next chapter, or do you want to see, see a couple I, more things a, here? a couple more things I think we need to see in this chapter on the apes. Okay. Um, specifically, uh, if we go on to page 77. All right. About the, um, the anthropomorphism of the gods. So let me just read this portion here. Uh, the syncresis, that's the comparison, of God and man is common in Homer. The syncresis of man and animal and their respective societies is frequent in Burroughs. That's our author, of course. As Homeric, Tragic, Virgilian, and other deities constantly help or hinder the humans, so the animals in Tarzan's world help friends and harm foes. A core theme of Beasts of Tarzan, that's the name of one of the, animal, of, of one of the novels, is clearly predicated on this classical precept of popular ethics. As the gods become a kind of magnifying glass through which the humans may be seen more accurately, the animals also permit the reader to gain insight into the psychological and spiritual workings of humans, and their relationships with each other. Okay, that's a fascinating point. That is, that right? is, yeah. Um, so you know, when I teach, when I teach the Iliad, um, you know, we often talk about how how the gods are kind of more human than humans, right? They're right. exaggerated uh, notions of humanity. Um, is he is Holtzbart saying that Burroughs does the same thing with the with, with the apes? That in, yes, in apes we see kind of an, uh, also an exaggerated both the good and the bad. Yes, um, and it's a kind of a commentary in the uh, main character's interaction with them, in Tarzan's interaction with these cartoonish kinds of characters, this the ape society. Mm -hmm. You see something revealed about Tarzan's character. Okay, in the same way that people say, you know, are you a dog person, right, or are you a cat person? Mm -hmm. Right, is there a particular personality type drawn to particular kinds of pets i suppose so right how yeah. many how many reptiles do you have in your house i uh, currently zero. Zero. yes right. we had one and we just got rid of him okay flushed it down the toilet no no we gave him we, he found a new home yeah, yeah. that's probably i probably shouldn't say that on the air right because that's <laughs> probably a felony i don't know <laughs> could be i'm only joking right. i'm not suggesting any cruelty to any kind of living creature i think when people ask a question uh someone are you a dog person right. or a cat person uh the the questioner really wants to find out um Am I allowed to like you or not? Right, <laughs> and they're thinking less about kind of personality types. They're just I thinking see. about, uh, do you agree with me on this? But are there yeah. personality types that are reflected in things like what sort of animals you socialize with? I mean, a person who rides horses—that's mm -hmm. a particular type. That is a particular type, right? right? I think broadly speaking, I think you could draw a caricature of a dog person versus a cat person. Okay, yeah, dog person might be a little bit more. You know, energetic, you know, Slobbery. on the go, maybe a little bit more messy, right? But uh, you know, an uh, outdoor outdoorsy, where a cat person is more kind of you know happier on the couch, fastidious. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the cat sits in their lap, something and... like that. Okay, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what Burroughs is trying to kind of do here, right? With um, Tarzan's interaction with the different kinds of animals, it reveals his character. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I like it. So we need to touch on just a couple more items from the animals chapter. All right, let's do it. So let's take us to page 86, Jeff. What do we have there? 
Uh, all right. Uh, Holtzmark writes, animals in Burroughs, unlike the gods in Homer, are morally quite superior to the vast majority of human beings. Okay, that's kind of what we were just saying. Yes. Right? So um, that, uh, like when I, when I teach the Iliad, um, I often find my students will come to, come to, come to the text with an idea that because they're gods, right. um, therefore they must be more moral. Right. So right? they've been influenced... By Plato, yes. By Christianity, exactly. By both, by another um, religion. I don't know exactly, but so, but by and large, it's actually quite the opposite, mm-hmm. right? Um, to be a beast, continuing here, to be a beast is not to be beastly or bestial. For beastness and bestiality or beastliness, so I like all these, <laughs> are two different categories. Neither quality uh, readily pro- implies the other, although both may be found in any one individual animal. Some beasts are bestial. But so are many humans. Many beasts are also more humane than humans. Yeah, I think that's good writing, by the way. That is very good writing. I like that. Yeah. It's to the point, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we see in uh, the world of Homer. That's what we see in the world of Tarzan. Right. So now I'm I'm itching to talk about themes because I think this, right. uh, there's lots of thematic uh, fingerprints all over this. But uh, should I wait? You should wait. Okay, I'm going to wait. For all right. For that. So all right. right at the bottom of that same page, just as the Greek hero may be beset on all sides by hostile divinities as well as kindly ones, so think Odysseus, right? Poseidon is hostile to him, Athena is helpful. So Tarzan not only encounters the savage creatures who lurk and wait for him, but also has a remarkable friendship with Tantor, the elephant. And by the way, in another passage, uh, he points out, Holtzmark points out that Tantor is from the Latin tantus, meaning really big. Yeah. So that's why the elephant's named that. Oh, nice, nice, yeah. Uh, Continuing, its very stability and endurance is perhaps best symbolized by the great bulk of the pachyderm. He balances, as it were, the many smaller but ill-willed animals who inhabit the jungle, and he offers a solid counterweight as helper and companion of Tarzan. In his relationship to Tarzan, he offers solace and quiet friendship. He listens attentively to Tarzan's musings, for he is very he is a very, quote, good listener. He's like the benevolent deity. Right. right? So the elephant in Tarzan is like, I don't know, Apollo or someone... Um, in myth. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is all reminding me, um, a number of years ago, I, uh, I wrote a chapter that ended up in a book called, um, Modern Fantasy and Classical Tradition. Yes, that's right. 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 We kind of, we, yeah. And, um, and so my chapter was on, um, making the argument that, uh, C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Right. Um, uses a lot of the same kind of themes that we see in Apuleius's Metamorphoses. Absolutely. And when I wrote that chapter... Um, one of the things that I, I set out to do, and I think I did it, but just barely, okay. was I had to show, um, I had to prove that Lewis, one, knew Apuleius, yeah. had read that, and that, that the, those, the story was meaningful to him in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. And there's enough in his letters that survives that suggests just that. Mm-hmm. And so and then I went from there and kind of t- to make the comparison. Um, and then when I sent it off, you know, you send these things off to, to anonymous right. readers, right? And one re- there was two readers, one reader... Uh, came back, was very enthusiastic, says, yes, this is great, let's publish it. And the second reader say, I'm okay with publishing it, um, but he says, um, it could be that um, Lewis felt some kind of Apulian influence, and I, I'll never forget the phrase he was, he says, or it could just be the way these stories are told. Mm. And so he was he was hesitant to kind of, to make any kind of concrete connection just because um, it, he he kind of felt like I had I had my idea, and I was just, I was looking, I was cherry picking things yeah. to, to, to fit. Okay, right. but doesn't the first guy win, the first reviewer, obviously, because 
The story of Cupid and Psyche is in Epileus, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the basis of Lewis's novel till we have faces. Till we have faces, right, right. right. And I, I, isn't that a slam dunk? Well, I used I used that right, okay. um, but I mean the comparisons I was making with the Dawn Treader all had to do with um, Epileus's metamorphoses mm. and not Cupid and Psyche. So I, I needed to establish a link there as well. And I remember um, at a conference talking to um, to one of the Bens, was the, the editors there. Oh yeah, I met him. And talking to him about this, and he said, he told me, he says, you know, he says, if you hadn't established that that very concrete link between Apuleius and Caesar, I wouldn't have accepted your chapter. Okay. And so, uh, and so I thought, and so, so you did it. I mean, I did it, but right. it, it reminds me of, of kind of right where we are here. Okay. That, you know, so um, I think establishing Burroughs' connection to classics is it's not the be all end all, but I think it's very important for this okay. book. But when I read about, um, you know, talking about you know, the apes as the gods and, and this is akin to that. The council of the dum-dum. Right. My mind does wander just that, is it, okay, that's really an interesting parallel, but are we just, are we creating something out of, uh, out of thin air and uh, that we, you could find, uh, you could find a zillion other stories and say, oh, I can, I can, I can make this fit. Even though he had a professed and abiding interest in classical myth. That helps the argument. And that, even though he studied Latin for eight years and he knew Caesar well, and he had read some Virgil and some you know, Greek in translation. I'm not saying that that's, that's, that's immaterial, but I'm, I'm wondering, could you take, could you take Kipling's jungle book and say these exact same things? Well, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It's been a while since I've read that work. Right. I mean, I just pulled it out because we, because Kip, yeah. Kipling seems to have a problem with Tarzan. Yeah. Well, later <laughs> uh, he's going to mention, um, uh, the story of Romulus and Remus, and you're going to see a, a closer connection. Excellent. Now, maybe, okay. maybe that doesn't prove that Tantor, you know, is a, uh, what a benevolent, deity in Tarzan's life, the <laughs> elephant. But I think it's highly suggestive. Okay, I, I, will, I agree with that, yes. Just as a digression, yeah. um, it has nothing to do with today's episode. You mentioned the Dawn Treader. Yeah. I was once talking to some child, small child, I don't remember who, delightful child, precocious child, not mine, and the child told me that they were reading The Voyage of Don Cheadle. <laughs> the actor, you know? <laughs> I, know I could not figure out what the child was telling me. You know, The Voyage of Don Cheadle. Never read that one. He went on a cruise. Yeah, I don't know what it. <laughs> I just, I, I wasn't listening carefully. The child had a little trouble pronouncing it, but yeah. That's hilarious. Isn't that funny? I'd read The Voyage of Don Cheadle. He's, yeah. an, he's an excellent actor. There you go. Right. And speaking of Don Cheadle, yeah? it's time for the ads. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. For the last 52 years now, and I remember it because Hackett is as old as I am. No way. Yeah, that old. Um, with their offices in Indianapolis and Cambridge, Massachusetts, they have been bringing uh, the classics to a popular audience um, in affordable and attractive and accessible ways. Um, and uh, I've talked at length that all That's right. the books that, that I have on my shelf yeah. that we've used for this podcast that I use in my classroom. Um, I love Hackett. Yeah. Let me read you some of the things they offer here. Okay. These are the categories, just the categories, Asian studies, classical studies, the lingua Latina per se illustrata series, history, Latin American studies, literature, modern languages, philosophy, and it goes on and on. Yeah. You're going to, um, uh, you're going to find what you're, what you're looking for and you'll be astounded at how affordable these things are. Yeah. So uh, my, one of the things my students bemoan is the the cost of textbooks. Oh, yeah. But when I order um, Stanley Lombardo's Odyssey for my myth class or you know, the translation of the Bacchae, um, they are astoundingly 
uh, affordable. That's right. Yep. yep. Very attainable. So also the classical languages offerings. I'm looking at the website here. A Hackett test prep manual for use with AP Latin. Hmm. Written by a guy named Ed De Horatius. Perfect. That's good, isn't That's it? That's not bad. Horatius in his last name. Yes. Or how about a Horace Reader by uh, Henry V. Bender. A student handbook of Greek and English grammar. Um, part two of Latin grammar. Aeneid book one. You name it, they got it. So, listener, if you're interested in any of this, do yourself a favor. Go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T-T, publishing.com. Find what you're looking for. Put it in your little digital satchel. thingy ma Yep. And what's our coupon code? It is A-N, yep. as in ad nauseum. And then the current year, which is M-M-X-X-I-I-I. That, is that right? No, 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 no. Oh, sorry. It's, it's, I was given the Roman numerals. Right. I, I can understand why you would do that. It's, right. it's actually much simpler. Okay. AN2023. And that will get them what? Uh, that will get them 20% off their entire order and... Free shipping. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Portland, Oregon. When I say the words Portland, Oregon, what do you think? I think um, I think hippies. No, no, no. No? Racial Coffee. Oh, that's right. Exactly. That's, yeah. what, I, that's what I meant to you say. You think of Mark Helweg, the entrepreneur yeah. who wanted to bring good coffee instead of the the typical mass produced stuff that you get. Right. And how did he achieve that? Well, I mean, he, he did he did some rigorous study and yes. comparison. And, right. And there's, I think there's actual science behind no. this. Yes, yes. Really? Exactly. And he produced these incredible machines, the Ratio 6 and the Ratio 8. And and you're a user of both. I, I Yes, I, I had the 6 for a while. Now I've, I've, um, I've kind of stepped up to the to the 8. Graduated. Um, but they both produce just the, the perfect cup of coffee. Yeah. There's no reason to go down to the, the bagel barn and beanery. And brewer, brewery something, right? No, no, no. There's the, it, it, you can do gonna, it right, right in, your, in your kitchen. Are we going to trot out all the tired <laughs> tropes and crazy taglines and slogans we've used about the Kindle brick and the... Scorch pad, and then you know the other one that we won't mention, and the metallic veins, and the Fibonacci head, and the plutonium holding carafe. Are we going to do all of that? All these things that we're not going to mention, right? right. And the brackish tang. We can't no, say that. No, People are so it? tired of that. No, so tired. No, let's just Good let's grief. not mention all those things you just mentioned. Yes, all and right. the bloom stage. Oh yeah, exactly. and then the brew stage. Right, like the Hitchcock uh, movie, right? Oh, the 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 brew the brew the no the, no the you're messing it the, up the bloom with a brew it's a bloom with a brew <laughs> that's right exactly no we're not going to mention no. any of that stuff right but let's say that there's someone out there yep. who's enjoying the podcast hard to believe mm-hmm. and wants to get um, better coffee up their coffee game yeah what should they do they should go to ratiocoffee.com okay r a t i o coffee.com you think they can spell coffee uh, I think I think they can spell coffee okay that's right I have faith in them we'll let it go and um, if they want to get one of these wonderful machines the six or the eight or mm-hmm. Check out uh, uh, all the other kind of uh, accessories and, and and things that Ratio has to offer. Now, wait a minute, Jeff. Yeah. I got to interrupt. Yep. Maybe someone will go there and they'll say, are you crazy? You want me to pay that much for a coffee machine? Yeah. it's. it's I, I can get a $20 Dakin Blecker or a Senior Coffee down at um, Quickie Mart or something yeah. like that. Yeah, you could do that. Okay, but why shouldn't they? Well, because this this is a, a machine. Unlike the, uh, the, the, the Senior Cafe. Right. Um, it's not gonna, it's not gonna crap out on you in, uh, in, uh, in 20 minutes, s- in seven, in seven weeks, I was going to say, but, okay. and it just becomes another kind of uh, hunk of junk, you know, um, right. you know, haunting the corner of your garage. Yes. These things are something you can pass down to your children. I would say though, that those machines, the ones we were denigrating, yes. they're very good at uh, imparting a plastic taste to your coffee. That is true. They're very good at that. Exactly. Sometimes you just want a little uh, plastic <laughs> in the morning. Right. You can really taste the petroleum. Right. So you're saying the ratio eight and six they don't do that, and although they're they're more um, they're less attainable maybe than some of the cheapos. Yep. 
you can leave it to your kids in the will. Absolutely. You yet and it's one I think it's one of those cases where you do you get what you pay for. Okay. And um these are these are wonderful machines. It's an investment if you I mean if you're into coffee, um this is the obvious next yeah, step. No looking back. Nope. And when you take it out of the box, you'll say what your kids said when you took it out of the box, right? What, what, which was what? It looks like the Millennium Falcon. Oh, that's right. That's right. Exactly right. Incredible. It's another trope that uh, we, we'd we're not going to mention. Not going to mention yeah. it. Right. So go to RatioCoffee.com and here is their coupon code. A-N-C-O-B as in beta. Okay. Eight. But you really had to think hard about that one. There's so many other kind of coffee. B things. as in beta. B as in beans. Okay. Brew. A-N-C-O-B eight. And what will that get them, Dave? That will get them 15% off. Check it out. All right, Dave, we're going to get into chapter four, which is entitled uh, uh, Hero. Hero. Mm -hmm. And where should we, we begin with this? Well, I think we want to begin right on the second page of the chapter. Okay. In which Holtzmark talks about a paradigm of the heroic type. Okay. So let me quote here. In the following analysis of Tarzan's congruence with the paradigm of the heroic type, no suggestion is made that Burroughs sat down and drew up a similar pattern. It would not be surprising, however, if he had done just that, for we know that from his earliest years he was fascinated by classical myth and culture. A letter dated 13 February 1887 from his older brother George, written to Burroughs in reply to one from him, underscores the point. Burroughs himself specifically credited his fascination with the ancient Roman legend about the suckling of Romulus and Remus by a she-wolf for the origin of Tarzan, himself suckled by a she-ape. All right, now there we go. There is your smoking gun. There is your smoking gun. Your silver bullet. All right, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. You're there with it? I am. Okay. Yep. You want to read on from that part? Because I think the next paragraph is equally illustrative. Yes. The profusion of heroic motifs and the displacements they have undergone in Burroughs' hero are indicative of a composite and eclectically conceived protagonist. He may well be Romulus, or Remus, but he is also Heracles, Achilles, Odysseus, Perseus, Telemachus, Orestes, and countless other specific heroes. It is not strange that Burroughs, who had, who had read widely in the classics and who, by his own admission, was inordinately fond of classical mythology, should have come up with a hero as classical, even in smaller details, as Tarzan. Consciously or not, Burroughs created his Tarzan in the classical mold. So now you're convinced, right? I am. Okay. I am, exactly. I think this is very interesting. That As I was reading that long list of heroes there, I was starting to get a little bit nervous. Okay. Because that's a, it can, it's, he's kind of going that you know everything can mean anything and anything can mean everything. <laughs> right? You can see whatever hero you want uh, right. uh, uh, mirrored in Tarzan. But I think we've established the background, his interest, the specific fascination with right. Romulus and Remus, and the, 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 the animal-human connection. Right. All right, we're good to go. I think also this explains the extraordinary popularity of the story. And maybe why other people resented Burroughs' success, hmm. right? He's a hack who's just repeating old motifs, right. cliched formulae, right? Right. But that's what people want. Yes, exactly, right. Right. It's, I mean, it's, it's George Lucas and Star Wars. Exactly. Right. W with the exception of, I guess, what is actually the first one that came out fourth. Yes. Um, the one with Jar Jar Binks. What was that called? The, uh, the Phantom Menace. The Phantom the, Plot. The, the number one. Yeah. 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 Oof. Right. I'm, but go ahead. But I, I remember when, uh, well, I don't really, I mean, I was very young when Star Wars came out. Right. I'm old enough to have seen it as a kid. 1978, I think. 77. 77. Was, was a new hope. But um, in, uh, you know, in you know, looking at kind of you know, Lucas's mythic interests, um, Star Wars did not, was not critically well received. No, and it was like it was like you know who are these these actors? It's Mark no space odyssey, right? Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is unwatchable. 
Uh, it's funny you say that. I tried to watch it because everybody keeps telling me what a great movie it's, is. It's not. I can't get past 10 minutes. No, it's 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 so excruciatingly slow. Yeah. It's one of those things where every, everybody likes it because they've been told they have to like it's it. It's like watching golf. <laughs> right, right. Oops. But, I mean, Chris, you know, Mark Hamill can't you know act his way out of a you know right. Ziploc baggie, which is, there's some truth to that. Right. And just kind of like the, the wooden dialogue. Right. Even, um, you know, Alec Guinness, Sir Alec Guinness, you know, right. he was embarrassed. To be in it, be in it. Exactly. It's the only thing he's known for now, though, right? right. Exactly, right. Obi-Wan. and he he lamented that to the end of his days. Right. But then, of course, it's it explodes in popularity. It makes zillions of dollars, right? And I think a lot of people just resented that. And then when it came out that um, Lucas was, you know, um, had patterned his story after Joseph Campbell's right you know, stages of the hero's journey. Right? Back back to our episode, the Jung and the Restless. Exactly. Um, a lot of people said, "Well, yeah, well, look what he's doing. He's just kind of he's just trotting right. out the old cliches." So what? So what? Right. <laughs> uh, they, those cliches are cliches for a reason because they work. Have you ever seen a Three Stooges movie? I have seen a Three Stooges movie. Okay. Yeah. So what? What's the most delightful moment in one of those movies? It's when Mo hits one of the other guys. Of course. And you know it's coming. Exactly right. And it's funny a thousand times. <laughs> right, exactly right. Right. And maybe I've, you know, revealed here my own brutality to to enjoy watching one guy hit another guy, you know, with between the eyes. But then there's the stooge block sometimes. The stooge, oh, exactly right. Right. The, the, where you, to, to Curly. The eye, the eye poke, right? Right. Curly's able to avoid it. And it's obviously stupid and formulaic, but... In some ways, so satisfying. So satisfying. Like when he takes the you know the large plumbing wrench to Larry's nose, <laughs> exactly. I, I can't get enough of that. We all see it coming, right? So now I should say, you know, the, the, so um, I thought one thing was interesting is that the kind of the 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 hero cycle that he uses is not Campbell's. Which, it's Raglan. It's Raglan's, which I I had I was not aware of. No, I, I wasn't either. So you learned something there. I did learn something. So there. did I. So he wrote this in what was this like nineteen eighty one? All right. So I mean, so Campbell was known. Oh yeah, for sure. And he was kind of the name is, but he 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 chose Raglan. He chose Raglan. Well, yep. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. So the top of page ninety seven here. This analysis takes us through category fifteen. We're not going to mention all of them in Raglan's list. And all but number three, the father and mother are close relatives, and number 12, marriage to a princess, are present. Hmm. Beyond reasonable question, Tarzan does fit the heroic pattern as outlined by Raglan, a pattern that could be duplicated from other sources without substantive changes in the gross outlines. In the final category, 16 through 22, however, the fit is perhaps more equivocal. So this goes against your claim, Winkle, that he's just seeing stuff that's not there, right? Well, Holtzmark's being, a, he's being very careful here. Tarzan does not die in the first six books or later for that matter, nor does he as a result become the object of formal cult worship as a hero. You know, these are raglan elements. Burroughs has nevertheless made certain accommodations in an ideal pattern of the heroic vita that permit us to discern some of these categories in Tarzan's bio biography, albeit in faded or displaced configurations. No, that's, that's very good. I mean, I would say that, um, and, and and also to the audience here, if you if you want to you know track down a copy of this book, um, and in an appendix he does lay out Raglan's the steps. Yes. So you can check it out for yourself. Um, but one of the, the one of the critiques I know that um, the enduring critiques of Campbell is that you know he has these various these specific stages of the hero's journey. The the, the criticism is that well they're still all vague enough that you can kind of make anything fit. Right. And I wonder if we could say the same thing about Raglan's uh, steps here. That I mean, also says yo look. Almost all these stages, except for like you know two or three, are there. Right. But are the the stages themselves generic enough that you could you could kind of make you know, any square peg fit around? All right. So draw the conclusion for me here. All right. Well, I, again, I'm just I'm I'm tempering 
kind of the surety okay. of the claim with an idea that, well, okay, but just because it seems to match Raglan's isn't evidence that um, of of a direct classical influence. Right? Okay. I think there are better arguments than this one. Right. right? I think the, the thing we just said about his his fascination with Romulus and Remus right. and the man-animal thing. Okay, now that's that's a hook we can hang something on. Okay. Yeah. He does have a catabasis of sorts. Of course. Right? In uh, The Jewels of Tarzan, right? He has a catabasis. He goes to Opar, the lost civilization in the midst of Africa, which traces its ancestry back to the legendary Atlantis and it is in Opar that Tarzan is temporarily killed, quote unquote, right? He's trapped way uh, down underneath the surface and he comes back out. Yeah. So there's your catabasis, your right? Catabasis, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what heroes do. Right? Okay. Right. That's what almost every hero does. It right. Seems, right. And uh, we are here recording, right? In the basement, the bunker. We had to go down the stairs. We, we, we did a catab We do a catabasis every time we do that's this. That's correct. That's right. why we're heroes. Right. That's right. Right. Exactly. Well, let's go on a little bit further and let's add a little bit more proof, right? Can you read starting on page 100 right at the top? Yes. Please. Bur Burroughs himself was willing enough to concede that such a story might have been written 15 years ago or 1,500 years ago. There is nothing new in the idea, nor have I claimed there was anything new in it. It has been used repeatedly from the time of Romulus and Remus and probably long before. Tarzan, this is a, good, this is a Holtzmark now. Tarzan must be understood as a completely and thoroughly traditional hero with an inalienable place in the upper branches of that literary tree whose roots are deeply embedded in the still fertile soil of the Greek and Roman classics. Isn't that nice? That's a good turn of phrase, isn't it? It is. Especially since Tarzan himself spends so much time in the tops of trees. Yeah, yes, exactly. And running around in that fertile soil. That's correct. So there's a double <laughs> entendre there. Right, 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 right. So I, I think it's right. This explains both the popularity of the story um, why it receives so much hate from the critics, and uh, its origin, right? Yeah. It's Romulus and Remus. One of the things I thought was interesting in this chapter is that um, Holtzmark spends, probably the, in, in terms of uh, making a direct comparison with a classical hero, he seems to kind of land on Odysseus as being the the best kind of corollary to, right. to, to Tarzan, which um, to my mind uh, is, I mean, it's, I there's nothing, there's nothing kind of strikingly um, Incorrect or, or or strange about about these claims, but I thought Heracles is would the, be more common. Yes, in terms of like a, a, a hero that is yeah. is is um, is savage, but yeah. um, kind of wants to be civilized. But he's fairly antisocial. He's a loner, and I suppose you might say, in some sense, that's Tarzan also because yeah. he's alone in the jungle. But he's he is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Initiated and integrated into the ape society. He gets to attend the Dum Dum, for example. Right. He does get. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I just. Um, and and Heracles has no wit. Well, except, neither does Tarzan. Oh yes. He, there's, there's no matus about him. Oh, absolutely. Okay, no, convince you, you, me. Well, you have adopted the, you know, the 1950s screen adaptations where he speaks broken English. Okay. All right. And uh, Holtzmark talks about how this was entirely um, wrong from the perspective of. Burroughs. Okay. His character had taught himself how to read and spoke perfect English the first time he encountered a white man or any, you know, English speaker in the part of Africa where he lived. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I, I just think, you know, these, the scenes where um, Tarzan's in Wisconsin right. or he's in kind of upper crust London society, um, I thought that, that speaks to, to me kind of you know, the, the uh, Heracles as, as kind of a, a man without a home, right? He right. doesn't, Heracles doesn't fully belong um, in the city. He doesn't fully belong out in nature. Okay, and that's that's kind of the 
the, so you liken him to Heracles. Heracles, or, or like a like like a Batman. Okay. In the Batman. Um, I think it's Odysseus. Really? Yep. Okay. Let me read you a little okay. bit here. All so, right. among the many epithets applied to Tarzan that recur with great frequency are lith, bronzed, smooth, brown, and muscular. Tarzan is not, however, a muscle man. Indeed, Burroughs was not happy with the first movie Tarzan, a guy named Elmo Lincoln, who played in Tarzan of the Apes because he was, quote, far from my conception of the character. Tarzan was not beefy, but was light and graceful and well-muscled. Then he must be the epitome of grace. My conception of him is a man a little over six feet tall and built more like a panther than an elephant, end quote. And so we find liberal use of such adjectives as supple and graceful. Burroughs admitted that he was rather prone to use superlatives. I think that makes it classical just there. Translating something from the classical era or from the imitators in the 16th century, mm -hmm. their prose is just littered with superlatives. I mean, there's one after another. It's the mostest superlatives I've ever seen. Okay. You can't do anything with them because English style isn't like that. Right, right, right. Yeah. But they love it, right? And so, I mean, he says... Um, he does not hesitate, in spite of his formulations regarding the ideal Tarzan, to call him giant, as well as tall, big, huge, and great. The first impression that Tarzan gives is of a superb physique. Okay. So so not, not so much Hercules, I'm saying. I'm, I see a lot of Hercules in there. Big, huge, great. Does that describe Odysseus? Um, no. well, Swarthy, bow-legged, short. Okay. Right? But um, light, graceful, well-muscled, the epitome of grace. Right. Uh, Not bulking. Can you read the little Tarzan <laughs> quote in the middle of the page? Sure. Here we go. His straight and perfect figure, muscled as the best of the ancient Roman gladiators must have been muscled. <laughs> Heracles. And yet with the soft sinuous curves of a Greek god. <laughs> <laughs> Not Hercules. <laughs> Told at a glance, the wondrous combination of enormous strength was suppleness and speed. Yeah. Now Jack's comment right after this right. is very much on point. Okay. Here one notes the merging, even if stereotyped, of the two cultures of Burroughs' classical hero, the might of Rome and the beauty of Greece. Right. And Holtzmark admits it's stereotypical. Mm -hmm. But so what? When you think of Greece, what do you think? I don't think of power. I think of grace and beauty. Mm -hmm. And when I think of Rome, I think of a bulldozer. Right. 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 So uh, Tarzan has both of both those qualities. Right. right. Yeah. I think that's probably one of the things that, um, that just personally, that I don't. I don't particularly care about Tarzan. He's, 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 he's the way that Burroughs presents him is that he's trying to make him every hero. Okay. I'd, I'd rather he land on a particular square. But you're a modern. Ooh. <laughs> Burroughs isn't modern? I've been waiting 118 episodes to say that. <laughs> I think, I don't like, I tend to not like heroes that are trying to be all things to all people. Fair enough. But spread too thin. Okay. Right. But if you had lived at the time of Burroughs, would you be like one of those critics? This is, you know, this is junk. Probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Dave, I think I've, I've found proof for my thesis here. Okay. Um, zip ahead to, to page uh, 109. All right. And We're still in the chapter on the hero. Yes, in the, in the first full paragraph there. Uh, do you have that or do you want me to read No, that? go ahead. Okay. So Holtzmark writes, Part of Tarzan's overwhelming appeal as a protagonist is precisely his boundless potential to become anything he wants to be. <laughs> All right? Okay. He combines the best of the man who is physically active and intellectually inquisitive. That's not Hercules. True. Okay. And both possibilities are part of his British arist aristocratic roots. Tarzan is able to bridge the two worlds of knowledge and action for an understanding the one in terms of the other. He has unified these two primary areas of human experience, word and deed, 
thought and action, mind and body. Now, of whom does that remind you? Come on. All right. Okay. Odysseus. There we go. All right. Odysseus. But Polutropos, versatile, a man of many turns. But Odysseus is also deeply flawed. All right. As Tarzan is he's just kind of he can just morph into kind of whatever hero he wants to be given the moment he's not deeply flawed he's, i don't think okay he does have some moments of rage and so forth we haven't talked about those but uh holtzmark comments on them okay but he's not the kind of person that would kill dolan you know uh, yeah. coming out of troy right right exactly right so and um oh right i think that that um you know, tarzan is i think one question we haven't really talked about is like who are these who are these novels for right um any, anybody who wants to read them, well, who, th- who likes a rip-roaring good story told with classical panache and style. Well, my sense is that these books are, the target audience would be adolescent boys. Hmm. All right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But so I think to expect kind of deeper, you know, you know, existential themes in a book that's, oh. that is for, for kids would be wrong, right? You're saying children aren't capable of deeper themes? I'm, I'm not saying... Take, take away the pejorative adjective existential and let's just talk about deeper themes. I, no, I think, no, I think children can, can, can handle deeper themes, but in the same way that I wouldn't um, shove uh, you know, a, a, a tome of Dostoevsky in my teenager's hands and say, here, appreciate this. Okay, but why not? Because I think at age 12, you're not, you're not going to get um, crime and punishment. Okay. Right? All right. So I, I'm... So I'm saying here that um, considering who the target audience is. Presumably. Presumably to critique Tarzan for being a hero that's all things to all people and finding something kind of thin and shallow, that is not a fair criticism. I got That's it. what I'm saying. Okay. All right. Well, let's skip ahead to page 112. Okay. Here's a deeper theme for you. All right. Quote, Tarzan cannot see God, but he adopts the firm conviction that, quote, everything that was good came from God. His own hesitation in slaying the witch doctor... Tika's selfless protection, that's one of the apes, of her, of her infant, his own help in rescuing it, and the beauty of nature. To his own immediate satisfaction, he then accounts for the creation of all other things in the jungle, including beautiful Shita, noble Numa, and lovely Bara. Like the biblical prophets, he must ask himself about the source of evil, or much as the writers of Genesis did some three millennia ago, about where the snake in the Garden of Eden came from. He asks the question, who made his star the snake? Okay. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, Tarzan is ruminating on some uh, deeper themes. Sure. I, I suppose it's easy for critics to tear this apart as a kind of juvenile yeah. rumination. Right. But I think it makes the character, you know, more than unidimensional. Right. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Could you read that next part there? Sure. Please. The heroic mentality of the classical protagonist is essentially in a state of siege, for it feels threatened by the world at the same time that it must have the world in order to recognize its worth. Burroughs develops this aspect of the heroic personality that involves apartness, separateness, and difference in his portrayal of Tarzan. For Tarzan's general attitudes about other human beings are not, on the whole, favorable, and he sees himself as somehow apart. Even in relationship to the apes, his own people, he is not always totally comfortable once he reaches thinking age. Okay, so there I see... uh, There I... That, there's a lot of Heracles there. Yeah. Someone okay. who just, he doesn't belong in either world. Right. Right. Um, it reminds me of uh, my film class. We talk about you know, the genre of the Western. Mm-hmm. as kind of a, a purely American mythos. And one of the, the kind of the um, 
the archetypal characters is is the gunslinger. Yep. And the paradox of the gunslinger is that the gunslinger doesn't belong anywhere. All right. So the 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 gunslinger has to go into the lawless territory, use violence to to bring law and order about. But once law and order have been settled, the gunslinger doesn't belong there anymore. And so the the gunslinger has to leave. Let's like you know every Clint Eastwood character that right. that any Western he's he has to leave. He's always kind of in between. Right. And that's what it was struck me as like uh, Heracles represents the paradox of of the gunslinger he brings you know with his labors he you know he kind of uh he he tames the monster in the neighborhood right but he oh he's always moving on um tarzan here as, as uh, holtzmark describes him is that he doesn't um he doesn't belong in really fully belong in the jungle he doesn't fully belong in london okay and so that he's torn between these things yet he's the everyman yet he's the everyman right okay but i, but I think that's i think that's that's true of of a lot of heroes, a lot of anti-heroes, I think one of the things we identify with them is think a lot of people feel like that, right? Mm-hmm. We, we feel displaced. That the places that we call home right. don't always feel like home. That's good. Well, well put. All right. One thing I've noticed is that about myself and about others is we want to be both totally normal and totally different at different times. Yes. Right. We we want to be considered not like anybody else. I am unique. I'm sui generis. But other times. We take the opposite approach. I'm just like everybody else. Right. And I don't think those two things are obviously, I mean, I think they're obviously deeply inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's... Irreconcilable. Exactly. No, but I think that's the experience of, of, of everyone, right? Right. And where does the self lie? So then no one is unique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So... Um, I say... Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm, I've... Um, Everything I've said, I've been trying to avoid the L word. L word. Oh, right? thank you so much. <laughs> right. Liminal. Right. There, I'll say it. Right. Um, but Tarzan is a kind of a classical, a classical liminal figure. He doesn't really belong anywhere. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we should push on to chapter five okay. and themes. Yes. And uh, bring this ship into port. Let's do it. So one of the themes of the Tarzan stories is love. Of right? course. Is there anybody for Tarzan? Jane. Right? Well, but she doesn't appear immediately. Oh, really? Right? And she can't be fitted neatly into his world. That's right. Because she wasn't suckled by an ape and raised in his world. So no. there are a number of discontinuities. These crazy kids have so many things against them. <laughs> yeah. All right. So in this particular novel called The Return of Tarzan, yes. you, you didn't know he'd left, but no. this is page 136. <laughs> He's coming back. Okay. In Return, La, this is a woman that um, loves him, La is twice disappointed in her desire to keep Tarzan with her. The time separating this incident from their next meeting in Jewels of Tarzan must be at least 20 years. For in the interim, Tarzan has married and his son Jack has grown up and married. Oh, my. Presumably at the same age as his father. A little bit of Odysseus and Telemachus there, huh? Okay. Okay. Nonetheless, both Tarzan and La, in their early 40s at this time, are as desirable as ever. Of course. Just like Odysseus, right? He doesn't seem to have aged. And we learn that for these 20 years, La has gone against the dictates of her religion and her assigned role in her society, that she marry one of the ugly Oparian men, by waiting for Tarzan's return. La's flouting of the norms of her world is Ovidian in its grotesqueness. Hmm. And in her own way, she is the literary descendant of Ovid's foolish Thisbe, insane Medea, vacillating Mira, and raging Ariadne, to mention a few. Hmm. La's love is an obsession an unhealthy thing in the best tradition of the great classical passions and she offers tarzan heaven and earth if he will but stay okay can you carry on there to get to the end sure after these impassioned protestations of her enduring and eternal love one may well imagine how easy easily love is transformed into hate especially in the view of tarzan's reply to her 
Quote, the ape man pushed the kneeling woman aside. Tarzan does not desire you, he said simply. That's it. <laughs> Ouch. This erotic antihero is reminiscent of all those heroic protagonists who shun their insanely passionate women in Ovid and earlier Hellenistic poets such as Theocritus and Apollonius. And La's outraged reaction is true to Ovidian form. Even Burroughs' extravagant pose, prose to describe her wrath recalls the stylistic preciosity in which Ovid's Latin wraps the diatribes of his abandoned hero heroines. Are you a little more convinced now? Um, yeah, I, I am. I like I, I I like this point a lot. Okay. Right? Um, and yeah, it, that I mean that list of you know, Thisbe, Medea, Mira, and Ariadne. Okay. Right. All right. And uh, and Th those tragic heroines, right? Tarzan does not want you. Tarzan does not want you. <laughs> right. What else does he have to say? Frankly, I mean that's just you know exactly right. That's it. Speaks. Of, uh, he always talks of uh, speaks of himself in the third person. <laughs> I don't know, like Bob Dole. Bob Dole. <laughs> All right, Dave. There's a. We should tell the audience. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that we're skipping over. Of course, for the sake of time, we have to. We have to. We have to plow through. No choice. Um, so let's get to the conclusion. Okay. And let's uh, go to the section of Holtzorf's book that is titled "Conclusion." Isn't that apt? It is. Okay. We, you, look, read a bit of that, would you? All right. I'm going to read the final paragraph. All right. And uh, this book is out of print. Any of you are interested in Tarzaniana or um, classics? I, you know, I encourage you to find it. But here we go. Burroughs' language is strongly reminiscent of the language and style of Greek and Latin. In his much maligned repetition of language, motifs, and themes, we see a clear analog to the organic wholeness of Homeric epic, and his alleged stylistic defectiveness in fact constitutes the very bedrock on which his heroic fantasy is constructed. The techniques and materials on which he constantly relies have been seen to derive largely from the antecedents of classical prototypes, the parallel plot, Thematic multiplication, ring composition, heroic pattern, polarity, mythos, syncrasis, chiasmus, divine machinery, and a host of others. Burroughs, like all good traditionalists, was able to use his antecedents without mindless imitation. He remained firmly rooted in a past tradition and at the same time was an inventive innovator on its patterns. Whatever its sources in shared conventions of form or collective memory of theme, the power that makes us respond to the wandering of Odysseus is also at work in Burroughs' Tarzan, and the two great popular heroes speak openly to our most cherished fantasies. Very eloquent. Well done. Well done. But what do you think of the claims? I, I mean, overall, I am convinced. Okay. Right? I think throughout, I was pushing back. You can uh, quibble around the corners. Exactly. You're pushing back in some ways just to play devil's advocate a, right. a, a little bit. Uh, I mean, that, that idea that... Um, you know, am I seeing something specific, or is this right. is just kind of generic archetypes that are everywhere mm -hmm. that that bothers me? But, sure. But the way he ties it up there, right on. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think there's something really valuable in the effort, frankly. Yeah. Because popular literature has, by definition, enormous appeal. Yes. Where does it come from? Right. Right. I would expect it to have something in common with a work like Homer. Exactly. Which I'm not saying it's equal to it, obviously. Right. But something in common because it has survived so long. Yeah. And I, I love stuff that kind of can connect these dots over the centuries. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Wouldn't it be surprising if the Tarzan novels are being read five, six hundred years from now, <laughs> if the world lasts that long? <laughs> right. I don't think anybody would pick them as 20th century. You know, it's all T.S. Eliot and right. things like that. And I'm not putting them down, but wouldn't it be surprising? It would. It really, really would. Yeah. But who knows? Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Yeah. 
Well, we have to wrap things up. We got to get out of here. Before we do that, Dave, want to tell us a little bit about the Moss Method and LLPSI? Yeah, we have a huge sale coming up. Huge. Actually, May 1st, May 2nd, and May 3rd of okay. next week. All right. Uh, this episode will be out shortly. I have never offered 20% off these programs, but I'm offering 20% off for the first time. Three days only. That's right. May okay. 1, May 2, May 3. Uh, go to mossmethod.com and latinperdiem.com. And you can find my Greek and Latin courses respectively. They are self-paced, expert, and accessible. They take you from... Neophyte to erudite. That's correct. You get to watch videos and interact with me both on the screen and in person during our office hours. As I've said many times, there may be a better program out there. I'm not really qualified to judge, but I, I really honestly don't think there is a better value in terms of the combination of expertise and comprehensiveness and cost. Excellent. And if they go to mossmethod.com and latinperdium.com, there's right. a, lot, a lot of free stuff they can check out. Almost 2,000 instructional videos I have on my YouTube channel. Fantastic. Analyzing Greek and Latin for free. Fantastic. We have to thank some people. Yes. And we, it's a pleasure to do so. Absolutely. Mishka, our wonderful engineer who puts this all together in record time yep. and makes it all sound seamless. Thank um, you so much. Who are these musicians? That uh, well, um, we didn't have Scott Van Zen on this one. No, but uh, let's, think, let's thank him anyway. Oh, yeah, he's an incredible guitarist. Yep. Provided so much excellent music for us. And uh, our friend Ken Tamplin is going to be singing uh, a cover song for the outro music, a little bit of a surprise coming up in just a few moments. Excellent. And provides the bumper music for the ads. All right, all right. And if um, if you want to drop us a note, if you want a shout out, you got some ideas, you got a complaint, um, you got a praise, you can write to, to Dave at Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget that V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V in nauseum. Go to adnauseum.com. Again, don't, don't forget the V. Check out our merch with lurch section. Get yourself a, 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 a lurch with merch. It's the other way around. Lurch with merch. And uh, pick yourself up a nice T-shirt uh, and check out our other things on offer there. That's correct. So, Jeff, what are we doing next week? I think we're gonna we're gonna start um, our these last two episodes of the of the Aeneid. Let's wrap yes. that up. Yep. Book twelve, episodes one and two of the Aeneid, and then we will be done. Put that thing to rest. Fantastic. All right, and Dave, I believe you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. It's uh, from someone named Travis Jeremiah Donkey, and the. Uh, I think it's pronounced correctly. The name of the work is Write Like No One Is Reading. <laughs> I like it already. He says, quote, One time I went to a restaurant and I asked the waiter for some food for thought. He left, came back, and tried shoving a sirloin in my ear. <laughs> nice. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.